Welcome to the CSR Podcast. I'm Brian Brazo. Every academic year, the Center for Renaissance Studies at Warwick hosts the Studio Research Seminar Series. These interdisciplinary academic talks from both internal and external speakers occur about once a month during term time and cover a wide variety of topics related to the early modern period. For the current studio series, we thought we would record the seminars and disseminate them via this podcast for any of you who weren't able to make the session, or for those of you who would just like to listen to the paper again. This year's organizer of the studio seminar is Dr. Sarah Trevisan, a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow based at the Center. It's her voice you'll hear introducing the speaker at the beginning of the session. The first studio seminar took place on 10th October 2017. Professor Liam Semler from the University of Sydney gave a fascinating talk on the origins of the English grotesque. His paper was titled The Arrival, Form, and Meaning of the Grotesque in England, 1500 to 1700. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much for coming to this um, first um, studio seminar of the year. And um, thank you very much uh, to Professor Liam Semler for being here. And um, we're very honoured he's here from Australia, from the University of Sydney, because he's been um, a visiting fellow at the English department since uh, the beginning of September with the programme that uh, Warwick has. There's this programme for um, fellows from other universities, and um, is that kind of exchange or...? Um, uh, no, it's no, just it's a just visiting fellowship. A visiting. Yeah. Okay. So I'm on research leave from Sydney University, and I, I'm All right. over here on a visiting fellowship. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, you got one of those. One of the University of Sydney English Department, and uh, Liam has also been a visiting fellow at Cambridge, Nottingham, and University of Massachusetts. And he's worked on um, a lot of things from uh, early modern women's writing to teaching and learning Shakespeare in schools and universities. And um, this is um, your latest um, interest, which is uh, visual arts with particular reference to uh, mannerism and, as it were, uh, the grotesque in the period between uh, 1500 to 1700. Um, So, um, Liam, thank you very much. Please feel free to have any drinks or whatever you, you might want to have. Thank you very much. It's a very kind uh, introduction, and it's lovely to be here. So it was great to um, be slotted into the speaking program uh, almost before I arrived, so that was terrific. Um, uh, I don't know how tall I am in respect to the images that are going to come up there, so I, uh, perhaps you should let me know when we get going about whether you can see, because it's, it is important that you see what we're looking at. Um, as you'll be able to tell when I give the presentation, Uh, What I've got here is pulled from the introduction to a manuscript that I've just completed, which um, is a source book for the English grotesque. So um, you'll kind of learn more about my aims and and what I've been looking at as I I go along. But really, um, the things that you see and the texts that um, I'll refer to um, are in the source book, uh, which is a completed manuscript, and, and the introduction deals with the way we think about the grotesque, and you'll 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 see uh, my approach as I go through. So I'll get I'll get straight uh, into it. Um, grotesque is a powerful word. The concepts and realities it is used to indicate are intriguing, enduring, and profound. It's a versatile word, as noun, adjective, verb, adverb, interjection serving disparate user groups and discourses with impressive semantic force. 
The persistent vitality and relevance of the term might make us wonder how we ever did without it. And yet, about 500 years ago, it was a newly arrived lexical immigrant in the English language. It did not step fully formed off the boat onto vacant English soil. On the contrary, this arrival of the grotesque is complex, multiple and prolonged. Now let me see if this will give me what I need. All right, now am I blocking because I could be sitting more... Uh, I don't know, tell, do tell me, give me feedback. Okay. <laughs> I'll hope you can see. The word grotesque arrives in many word forms over many years, inflected by its Italian and French heritage. Chief among these word forms are variants of grotesco, grotesque and grotesque, and antica, antic and antique. These two families of variants, as I'm calling them, must find their homes in a thriving lexical population already characterised by long-established and newer words, native, ancient and foreign words, and, as a consequence of all this, words with overlapping, contradictory and ambiguous meanings. Chief among the words that interact with the grotesque are these uh, that I've put in the list. And these are not the only terms in play, but their interconnected forms and meanings chart much of the territory through which the grotesque first wanders in England. So I might just add a little footnote here saying that the study that I've conducted is intensely focused on word and concept. I'm very interested in trying to be precise about the word and the way the word looks and how the word moves and the concept and how the concept signifies. So um, uh, I hope I'm not too fast in moving from one to the other so that you can tell what, when I'm talking about one or the other because at times I will be talking about specifically the word and what it's doing or, or the concept and how it, how it operates. But that's um, a list of other terms and also concepts and motifs that are all operative when you start to chase the vocabulary of the grotesque in early modern England and it's quite a um, kaleidoscope that you end up looking at. I've just completed a major book project to compile a source book on the early modern English grotesque. The book's aim is to provide a textual snapshot of the terminological and aesthetic ecosystem that nurtures the early English grotesque. It does so via a chronologically arranged, annotated and cross-referenced collection of English primary source texts from 1500 to 1700. In other words, textual extracts are my window onto talking about the historical grotesque in England. Um, here are two important examples, just to give a, a random uh, pair, not, not so random pair. The very first example is actually the earliest reference to the grotesque that me or other people have been able to find or at least publish um, and discuss, and the reference is talking about the parted antics. Uh, it's talking about caryatids um, holding up, so um, hominid or female um, form columns holding up stage architecture for a um, a pageant for Henry VIII uh, and so that's the earliest example in an English text that we've been able to find so far. Henry Peacham uh, is a, nearly a hundred years later but gives a very important description of grotesque design 
and so these two texts are very important for their own um, specific uh, reasons. Now the result of um, going through and producing a chronological uh, compendium of source texts on the grotesque, I hope, uh, is a philological map of usage uh, in respect to the grotesque that reveals generic locations and authorial uses of the key terms, as well as depicting temporal trends from the arrival of the grotesque in the early Tudor textual record through to its wide dissemination by the close of the 17th century. Generic positioning, um, for example, how do dictionaries or travel accounts or masks, um, so generic positioning, how do those different genres use keywords, and authorial predilection so how do individual authors like Edward Hall or Sir Thomas Brown or Margaret Cavendish, how do they use the key words? These two things are significant shaping forces in the manifestation of the grotesque in the collection and by extension, um, genre and authorship are key to the early modern English textual record of the grotesque generally. Now, it becomes quickly apparent to anyone who glances over the full data set, which is quite large, that various examples of usage, regardless of the genres and authors in question, tend to fall into two broad domains of semantic operation, theatricality and visual arts. The former domain includes, for example, application of the key terms to dance, drama, ritual, anti-mask and entertainments as well as to bodily posture, gesture, expression and movement. The latter domain includes, for example, uses relating to graphic, sculptural and architectural arts, as well as to textiles and plate. In summary, theatrical uses relate to bodily performance in time and space, and visual art uses relate to temporally static artefacts. And these two domains are porous, and many individual textual examples display the simultaneous relevance of both theatricality and visual arts. There are usages in the collection, particularly emerging through the later 17th century, that rise above this duality by expressing more abstract or evolved notions of the grotesque, but many of these still ground themselves in theatricality or in visual arts. It's in the centuries following the two that I'm looking at that the duality of theatricality and visual arts weakens and coalesces uh, in concert with the rise of more sophisticated and encompassing theories of the grotesque that begin to dominate the field from the 19th century onwards. There are then three axes of special importance that you could keep in mind when exploring the early modern English grotesque. And these are the word forms and meanings of grotesco, grotesque, grotesque, and antica, antic, antique, the generic locations and authorial predilections, and three, the domains of theatricality and visual arts. Now, none of these is a simple binary, and all six reference points are complexly constituted and interdependent. While these axes imply a certain archival clarity, it is important to emphasize that just about every detail and relationship in the textual record is complicated by ambiguity. 
The sources and documents preserve traces of the grotesque that may be classified, but in many respects, the concept and its vocabulary remain wild, which is to say, elusive, partly known and resistant to control. This is an important claim, because although many scholars declare the grotesque to be definitionally challenged, much current work on the topic nonetheless gives the impression that the beast has been tamed, and the primary means for understanding it are already established. Now the reason for the runaway success, um, sorry, the, the reason for believing that we've got a handle on the grotesque is the runaway success of grotesque theorising. Uh, and the grotesque has been theorised across all academic fields. It's also due to the special dominance achieved by two theories in particular, uh, those of Wolfgang Kaiser in 1957 and Mikhail Bakhtin in 1965. Now these two dragon tamers, Kaiser and Bakhtin, have equipped generations of scholars with magnificent explanatory paradigms relating to estrangement and alienation on the one hand and to carnivalesque and grotesque realism on the other. These paradigms are easily graspable, they're nuanced, they're highly effective as analytical instruments. Bakhtin, as the notes in, in my collection imply, and also online citation results confirm this, Bakhtin towers above all rivals, including Kaiser, as the most influential theorist of the grotesque, and far and away the preferred guide for scholars of early modern literature and culture. Numerous other scholars have advanced our understanding of the ways the grotesque can mean, and this list um, up there uh, is just a little taste of some of the names, names that might be relevant to uh, scholars in literary studies, so it's not even a comprehensive list. Um, nonetheless, if you uh, read through what these people say about the grotesque, uh, it will confirm the influence of Kaiser and Bakhtin, because you'll see that, that influence coming through in the way they talk about um, the grotesque since the 1960s. <clears throat> Another thing that you'll notice is that not much of the theorising spends extended time looking at the archival details of English words and English language. So given that state of affairs, uh, Francis K. Barash's book, The Grotesque, A Study in Meanings, from 1971, is a valuable anomaly. Barash's path-breaking book explores in detail the permutations of word and concept in the textual record from about 1500 to 1900, and it's not been surpassed. My work owes much to Barash's insights and her approach, um, with which it has an intellectual affinity. My aim really has been to step in historically before the modern theorization of the grotesque commences on the dual premise that the grotesque is all too easy to wield these days and while we have seen the wood for a long time we've a long way to go before seeing the trees particularly the English trees. Although the three axes noted um, earlier do assert some clarity 
The primary goal is to urge a type of lostness in the evidence, that is, among the detail, among the trees, in order to provoke a rethink and to invite production of new lines of approach that do not inevitably lead to Kaiser and Bakhtin. The beast is not necessarily already tamed, nor is it, for that matter, necessarily beastly. The amount of grotesque visual art surviving from 1500 to 1700 is almost infinite. European art is the crucible of the grotesque and art historical scholarship relating to it abounds. If we narrow the focus down to just early modern English, uh, that context, the extant body of grotesque visual art remains extraordinary. Extant visual art from the English uh, period, 1500-1700. The saturation of early modern English art and culture with the grotesque is visible in all arts. Tapestry, embroidery, textiles, printers' devices and ornaments, prints, plasterwork, plate, silverware, goldsmithery, jewellery, architecture, interior decoration, wall painting, furniture, gardens, painting, limbing, stage design, costume, and dress. Uh, that's kind of a representative uh, list. It's not even an exhaustive one. But the picture it paints, if you go to art, art historian specialists in each of those areas and look at the visual um, corpus that they reproduce for us, um, it's breathtaking. You suddenly think, that's incredible, the amount of uh, grotesque visual art in England between 1500 and 1700 across such a diverse range of media. Just about everybody, from monarchs to merchants to madmen, from cardinals to charlatans, from scholars and artisans to the unskilled poor, had opportunity to encounter the visual or theatrical grotesque and respond. What must they have thought and said? We've lost the chatter that accompanied the early modern grotesque and played a fundamental role in its actualization in myriad cultural forms. There does remain a depleted echo of such human noise in occasional textual accounts of conversations and reactions to grotesque art. But these accounts are always mediated and tantalisingly unsatisfactory. We know, for example, that King Francis I of France discussed grotesque art at some length with King Henry VIII's ambassador, Sir John Wallop, in 1540. We know that exactly a century later, in 1640, Peter Paul Rubens referred to grotesque work in the negotiations for paintings for the Queen's House, Greenwich. As has been widely documented, the origin of the early modern grotesque in Europe as a visual art style lies in the excavation of Emperor Nero's Domus Aurea, the Golden House, AD 64-68. to 68. But the excavations in Rome were from about 1480 onward. As Michael Squire explains, the Italian word grotesque uh, was created to indicate that these newly discovered ancient decorative paintings are of the grottos. They are found in subterranean, because excavated, uh, Neronian rooms that are explored by early modern visitors who are lowered down on ropes into the buried ruins and then they proceed through a labyrinth of interconnecting tunnels. 
I think there might be a person wanting to come in. It's interesting that um, as soon as one has artists and other visitors going down into the um, grottos to look at these um, newly discovered decorative paintings, almost immediately metaphoric and abstract conceptualization of the motifs and designs um, is visible. Um, for example, one of the earliest accounts of grotesque visual art is a poetic account which says that the visiting painters who are crawling through the ruins gripping uh, bread and wine lunches looked more bizarre than the grotesques. And there's also the uh, Piccolomini altar contract which offers another early usage dated to 1502 and that associates grotesque with fantasy. So already from the get-go from the 1490s and around 1500 the visual style is being um, considered um, abstractly, conceptually, metaphorically, as well as, you know, in, in its literal form. The uncovered Neronian paintings are, of course, part of a larger aesthetic context. Uh, and this context has its stylistic precursors in earlier Roman art and is usually described in relation to the third and fourth of the so-called four styles or phases of wall painting classified at Pompeii and Herculaneum. The third and fourth styles are associated with fantastical modes of ornamentation, including candelabra-style assemblages, images of nonsensical and illusionistic architectural arrangements, suggestions of theatrical performance, and hybrids and monsters. It should come as no surprise that these ancient decorative styles are not just continental. They feature in Romano-British art. Consequently, if you were to write a comprehensive account of grotesque visual art in England, it would need not only to move forward from the solid arrival of the style around 1500, but jump back to include some account of Romano-British decorative art of the 1st to 4th centuries, and then perhaps skip forward from there to survey aspects of the decorative art of medieval manuscripts and architecture. It's important to acknowledge that just as these fanciful decorative styles were present initially in Rome in the first century, then revived in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, they were also present initially, to some degree, in second century Roman Britain, before being revived in England in the early 16th century. Yet the English revival had to come indirectly via the Italian and French revivals. Thus, a satisfactory history of the grotesque in England would take account of the multiple complexities of arrival, survival and revival. The arrival of the grotesque in England is integrated with the arrival of classical style. In general terms, to speak of the style Alantica is very often to speak of grotesco, and to speak of grotesco is always to assume the style Alantica. After the excavations of Domus Aurea, Grotesco was regularly cited as something of an epitome or locus classicus of the antique style in painting. The critical period for the substantial arrival of the grotesque style in England is, I think, at its narrowest, according to the textual record, and bearing in mind it could be wrong, um, 
1520, somewhere around there. On the evidence of some royal pageants, architectural ornament and printed title pages in England. More broadly though, if you put the range at about 1510 to 1540, um, you'd include a massively expanded array of visual evidence across various media. Bearing in mind that royal and aristocratic records dominate the early part of my data set uh, from its start around 1517 to the death of Henry VIII in 1547, it's clear that the accession of Henry VIII in 1509 was a key event for the English grotesque, uh, both in terms of visual arts and theatricality. The culture of magnificent display, powered by Henry's long-term emulation of European courtly grandeur, not to mention Cardinal Wolsey's briefer but significant expenditure on luxury goods, depended aesthetically on the classical revival in France and Italy, which incorporated cultivation of the grotesque. There are many European sources of influence, uh, of course. Um, for example, the initially Basel-based artist Hans Holbein resided twice in England, 1526 to 8 and 1532 to 1543, where he was employed at Henry's court and contributed enormously and at the highest level of artistic accomplishment to the production of grotesque art. Then there is Henry's uh, commissioned suite of grotesque tapestries, known as the Antiques. This was woven in Brussels around 1540 to 42 from cutting edge Italian designs designed around 1517, created by no less than Giovanni Francesco Penny and Giovanni de Odin. So this is a straight line back to Raphael, Raphael workshop, and Raphael is a straight line back to the grottos um, where uh, he saw these designs um, as they were being excavated. After the death of Henry, and generally from the 1550s onward, the extravagant decorative excesses of Antwerp mannerism boasting strapwork, scrollwork, sinister figures, bizarre monsters, runaway eclecticism and horror vacui. That Antwerp mannerist style sweeps through England in a tide of fantastical invention that drowns the quieter elegance and poise of earlier examples of grotesque work. Many of those earlier works had made a virtue of easeful grace and blank space in sympathy with more restrained antique styles associated with the paintings in Domus Aurea and earlier discovered classical masonry. It's a feature of the English textual record that the words antique and antique or antique work are widely used from the earliest years to designate styles and motifs associated with the visual grotesque. Variants of the word grotesque appear rarely in the 16th century archive, but they rise in frequency as the decades pass from about 1550 through to the end of the 17th century, by which time the word grotesque is well on its way to becoming the default English term for the visual style and its motifs. But early on, the key terms are antique 
and antique. Now antique and antique are pronounced identically. They both sounded like the modern word antique. And they're spelled interchangeably. In addition to signifying the grotesque, either spelling, antique or antique, um, either of those spellings could be used to mean antic things, in other words, things that are bizarre, extravagant or ridiculous, or ancient things, uh, things that are old generally, or classical specifically. The English favouring of this term, antic, is understandable because the blend of meanings, grotesque in style, bizarre and ancient, that blend of meanings is so apt, but it's not unique to English. There is consensus that, the, that Italian supplied English with both grotesco and its equivalent antic. The Oxford English Dictionary is correct in stating that the English term antic does not derive from the English word antique, uh, even though it's often spelled identically. But the word antic comes from the Italian word antico, and it's the word as it is used to mean grotesque. So hopefully this will clarify that. Uh, art historian David Summers writes, the English word antic is from the Italian antico, the whole phrase being antico grotesco. Now depending on which um, art historians you're reading, they'll, they'll word that in different ways, but the point is, is always the same. That we get in English both the words um, from um, Italian. Um, the key to the issue is that the decorative paintings discovered in Domusorea were swiftly seen as an epitome of classical style. Now, what did the classical uh, or what did the stylistic transformation look like in that seminal period in England? Simon Thurley credits King's printer Richard Pinson with the publication of the first English title pages in the antique style. Thurley's examples include a title page designed by Hans Holbein uh, in Basel in 1516 that's then used by Pinson in England in 1518, and a title page designed by Urs Graf in 1518 that Pinson uses in 1519. There's one example. Although these title pages are transitional in motif, design and fluidity of execution, they manifest early experimentation with classical components such as putty, winged putty, uh, winged putty heads, vases and urns, drapery and masks, fruit, candelabra style ensembles. This classical aspect distinguishes them from characteristically medieval designs that work with heraldic beasts, armorial shields, wild men and women, simple floral or foliate borders, and monsters and animals familiar from manuscript marginalia. In summary, there's evidence across a range of English arts of the local creation and manifestation of grotesque work between the years 1510 and 1520. And from 15, the 1520s onward, examples of English-made grotesque decoration in sacred and domestic buildings proliferate and reach a peak through the Elizabethan period. The English arrival of the theatrical grotesque is more difficult to appraise than its manifestation in visual arts. So shifting now from thinking about the visual arts phenomenon to the theatrical phenomenon. 
One reason for this is the fugitive and disparate nature of the evidence in respect to performance, gesture and expression. The first time the word antic, so far as I can find it, um, is directly applied to theatricality, broadly speaking, is when Roger Ascombe mocks indecorous archers for seeming to dance antics in 1545. And uh, his description is, is lovely, especially in the more extended form of the way archers um, <laughs> have one leg back, arms forward, all this sort of, and their mouths going all over the place and leaning to make the arrow move. And, um, and he says it resembles as though they're dancing antics. Uh, <clears throat> it's very hard to find elucidation on that term, but um, I'm putting it into the term into the context of my study of the grotesque, and I think he's alluding to the maresca, a mode of extravagant and spectacular courtly dance that varied in form, but was usually athletic and exotic, and could involve choreographed aggression and erotic themes. Forms of maresca feature in European courtly entertainment from the mid-15th century onwards and go by a variety of names including Morisco, Moresque, and in England sometimes Morris Dance. Now the Morris Dance as an English parish and rural phenomenon, including in, in various combinations male dancers with bells and napkins, a man cross-dressed as Maid Marian, a friar tuck, a hobby horse, a fool, pipe and tabor, and bearing some relationship to Robin Hood plays and games, that uh, Morris dance as a parish phenomenon is distinct from, but also subtly related to this courtly uh, Moresca. The exaggerated and stylistic posturing of Moresca dances not only connects them to representations of Bacchic and satiric dances in ancient art, but also means they function well as ornamental motifs in 15th century print and plate designs. Uh, hence the image on the left, which is effectively putting Moresca dances into an ornamental um, image. <clears throat> in 1549, Thomas Chaloner translates Satiri Semicapri Atalanus Agitant as satyrs, half-goats dancing the antics, thereby demonstrating that the ribald classical dances associated with satyrs and atalan farce may be termed antics. Now, whether you follow uh, Ascom or Chaloner, it seems that antics and antic dance were appropriate terms for bizarre dancing and posturing associated with the Moresca or related entertainments or licentious dance associated with satyrs capering. And in both cases, the classical association is fundamental. It's not always clear in the sources whether a theatrical or a visual art context is implied. And that's why I've given you here John Birch. Um, he imagines his polemical target. Um, I love this. Um, because you understand your name is Master Board, you should have an antic beard of a whelper's toward. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you ponder that. Um, <laughs> so he's, it's hard to know with that sort of attack on someone um, that they need a dog's turd beard um, and that that's an antic image. It's hard to tell whether he's thinking uh, theatrically or in terms of visual arts because you could find precursors in both spaces uh, for that. <clears throat> 
Throughout the second half of the 16th century, the word antic finds wide application to human behaviour of an exaggeratedly performative, that is to say, bizarre, comical, ridiculous, absurd, amusing, satirical kind. Now, the word you've all been waiting for, the word grotesque and its variants first appear in an English text, at least in my collection, in the phrase, the work grotestan, in reference to grotesque work ornamentation on plate in the inventory of King Henry VIII. Sir Thomas Smith's library list from 1576 has grotesque as well, uh, which could be inventorying a book of continental prints of grotesque um, designs. Uh, these early uses are um, unique, they do stand out, and the reason for that is because the whole texture of the record is using the word antic when it's referring to these sorts of things. So then when you see the word grotesque, you kind of go, oh wow, that's, okay, that's surprising. Um, uh, so this is all um, in the early Tudor period. Already we've jumped straight to 1576 though, so you have to go quite late to get, to multiply examples of the word grotesque used for visual arts. One of the most brilliant um, users of the term is John Florio. Uh, and he continues the visual art association uh, in his definitions of grotesco and grotesco in A World of Words in 1598. Uh, and even more exciting, his analogical use of it uh, in his translation of Montaigne's essays, uh, where he refers to... Uh, where Montaigne is describing his own essays as grotesques, in other words, as peripheral ornamentation without a proper, um, properly delineated subject in the middle. Um, and Montaigne uses the word grotesque um, in French, and then John Florio takes it over and gives us grotesco works. Um, but an interesting thing there is he adds antique boscage as well, and the point I'll make is that often the word grotesque it's chaperoned by the word antic in various forms to help English readers um, locate what grotesque might mean because they're more familiar with antic. Anyway, this makes Florio the first English writer to break the word, the word grotesque, out of um, its elite manuscript habitat because primarily it's in a manuscript habitat of inventory makers or, or people with libraries. Um, and Florio puts it into print and uh, into a couple of pretty widely circulated um, publications. So he's introducing the word grotesque um, to a much wider reading public. But we're already late in Queen Elizabeth's um, reign by now, uh, so it's taken a while. The word grotesque then, and its variants, continue primarily to signify visual arts throughout the 17th century, but it doesn't mean that the term antic is no longer used. Um, and often they grotesque and antic cohabit in paragraphs and sentences. Uh, in the theatrical domain, though, um, it's interesting that antic um, is very tenacious, and um, it's, the word antic serves as a primary choice right through the 17th century, and it persists today, I would think. We associate the word antic with the, the theatrical or performative um, quite strongly, um, and the grotesque might even be a considered a much more extreme version of, of antic, if, it's, if there's a connection there. It's remarkable that the word grotesque first gets applied to visual arts in that um, inventory of Henry VIII around 1547 to 50, the work grotestan, but it's not till a century later, 
in 1640 that the word grotesque gets applied unequivocally to theatricality. And that's in a description of an anti-mask entry in Sir William Davenant and Inigo Jones's published mask text, Salmacita Spolia. Four grotesques or drollities in the most fantastical shapes that could be devised. And it's fitting that these words are probably composed by Jones because he's surely England's most knowledgeable expert on the grotesque um, at his time, uh, as his architecture, his annotations, his sketchbook, and his mask designs uh, confirm. It's exciting that not only is this the first English um, theatrical use of the word grotesque, but Jones's sketches for these characters also survive. So that's really helpful to us to be able to look at, <laughs> at what his sketches are and to look at the use of the word, and we can start to say, okay, now we might be starting to get some sense of what um, an early modern reader or artist might think the word grotesque means. Uh, we can match up the image um, with the word. Sporadic applications of forms of the word grotesque to the broad domain of theatricality continue through 1650 to 1700. Um, for example, uh, in 1653, um, there's a theatrical entertainment designated grotesque. In 1677, John Dryden's State of Innocence uh, includes as a diversion between acts the sports of the devils as flights and dancing in grotesque figures. And other examples could be cited, but not very many. Um, so in other words, this is through the later 17th century, I could cite some more examples of the word grotesque referring to theatrical performances. But the bulk of um, references that you'll find will still be antic. The word antic will still be used. It fits quite, quite happily for, to describe these um, uh, theatrical interludes. All right, to bring us on a little bit um, further forward, the 1640s turns out to be something of a turning point uh, because from that period, more or less, um, the word grotesque uh, not only begins to infiltrate the theatrical domain, but it also conveys an ever-widening range of abstract and analogical meanings. So in 1650, you can refer to grotesco maxims, in 1668 to a grotesque deduction, and in 1673 to the grotescos of his conversation. Another significant shift in the 17th century to be aware of is in the later 17th century, the influence of French-English dictionaries and texts translated into English from French, including romances, have a big impact on widening the range of options um, for people for the word grotesque. Um, so there's a broadening of scope of the word grotesque in, towards the end of the 17th century uh, and the French contribution I think is particularly important um, at that point. Now along the way the word antic has continued to be used to convey negative connotations as well. Negative connotations associated with mixture, confusion, contradiction, absurdity, imperfection, monstrosity and indecorum. And uh, that use of antic for more negative things continues through the 17th century. Um, literary texts often run ahead of the dictionaries in being experimental and exploratory in the way that they use the text, or particularly if they're translating from French into English. Uh, and literary texts also are particularly good for starting to register emotional valencies. And so that's a key thing as we head towards the modern understanding of grotesque, which has quite an emotional um, uh, aspect to it. So you start to see shock, horror, revulsion, 
amusement derision provoked by antic or grotesque indecorum. But those um, emotional kind of valencies are, are coming towards the end of the period. Uh, <clears throat> the 17th century English grotesque uh, chalks up some major achievements. Um, the vocabulary by the close of the 17th century, the, the word antic but also the word grotesque are quite widely disseminated. Uh, and also it be, uh, the word grotesque becomes more broadly applicable or generally useful um, rather than um, confined to visual arts or theatricality. However, the idea of incongruity, as far as I can see, uh, interpreted in multiple ways, is confirmed as central to the grotesque, incongruity. Um, and as the intensity and as the intensity of the notion is heightened, especially in literary texts, um, there's a registration of the negatively inflected emotional responses to that incongruity. And if you care to speculate about uh, why the mid-17th century is so conducive to the development of the grotesque, um, I think uh, a lot of things could be brought in as um, salient um, aspects. Not just that the key terms have been around for a century by then, at least, um, but of course uh, the 17th century is a watershed period for new cultural knowledge and um, unsettling of inherited uh, structures and mores. Um, and of course the English Civil War is a key player in this, where new vocabularies were being sought for for satire and revulsion and all, all those sorts of um, things, and the grotesque was was very helpful uh, there. Uh, if you have a look at Samuel Johnson's dictionary, you suddenly get a sense of how different things are becoming in the 18th century, uh, where we have distorted of figure, unnatural, wildly formed, uh, and you can see uh, Daniel Fenning's Royal English Dictionary confirming that approach, grotesque, distorted in figure, unnatural, wildly formed without any regard to nature or property. In both Johnson's and Fenning's dictionaries, the theatrical aspects of the grotesque, in other words, buffoonery and odd or ridiculous behaviour, postures, grimaces and gesticulations are all confined to definitions of antic. So there's a rather neat split there where antic can then take the, um, the kind of ridiculous behaviour and buffoonery and grotesque gets this uh, more abstracted um, definition. Um, and that's, that's a to modern eyes, that seems like a really clear path to the modern then, where we've, we've got the grotesque starting to represent intense incongruity, and you've got um, antics still maintaining this idea of buffoonery and, and ridiculous behaviour. But to say the 18th century just settles on that is to oversimplify um, the 18th century. All right, I'll just um, conclude. The visual and theatrical grotesque, under whatever word form, has always been in dialogue with decorum. Whether you cite Vitruvius or Michelangelo on the topic, or Inigo Jones. But the mid to later 17th century dictionaries end up preparing the word grotesque to encapsulate intensely problematic breaches of decorum. 17th century lexicographical and literary uses are essential, uh, are an essential foundation for the 18th century dictionaries confirmation of the word grotesque as a signifier of things that are not just incongruous but intensely or disturbingly so. This process accelerates through later centuries, specifically the 20th, 
when previously unimagined horrors of two world wars and the extraordinary technical and artistic inventions accompanying them demand radical aesthetics and put the blowtorch to moral certainties. So in the 20th century, as the world reels, the grotesque at last finds its feet and it leaps away from the antic into its own genuinely new territory. And there can be no turning back for the term and its meanings. So from an English viewpoint, in little over 400 years, the grotesque has gone from elite bling to representing some sort of human necessity. It's a word we need to describe the human condition. Thanks.